Isaiah 54. We've come to a couple of chapters now, which I have anticipated for a long time. Chapter 53, everyone anticipates, right? This is one of the most well-known passages in the entirety of the Bible. But chapters 54 and 55 perhaps are less known, but they are no less full of wonder and grace. I mean, uh, many, many years ago, I, I memorized these two chapters and early on in memorizing the Scripture, and they became incredibly precious and sweet to my soul. And I hope that we may all get a better glimpse of the glory that awaits all of us who are in Christ Jesus as we open these two chapters together. They really are kind of the high point of the book so far. We know that in the first 39 chapters of the book, these chapters are primarily concerned with the judgment of God upon sin, upon wickedness. Of course, that would come upon the nation of Israel, but not just upon the nation of Israel. It would come God's judgment upon many of those ancient nations, and he outlines in prophetic detail about how he will bring his wrath to bear upon a wicked and sinful people. But of course, the truth is, it's not just nations that have gone astray. It's every one of us, every single one, can see ourselves in chapters 1 to 39 under the righteous wrath of the Almighty God, a holy and righteous and pure God. That's where we are. That's where we deserve to be in chapters 1 to 39. It should end there if God were merely just. But beginning in chapter 40, he begins this way, comfort, comfort my people. And he begins to unfold the wonderful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does so primarily by pointing us to the Savior under the title, the Servant of Jehovah. The Servant of God who would do God's will in every way exactly as God willed. And he obeyed to the very end, even to death, even death on a cross, he was obedient. And as a result, God has highly exalted him. And this is what we saw in chapter 53, his incredible obedience to the Father, dying in the place of sinners. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ is given by God to take the place of his enemies and suffer under his wrath so that his enemies might be forgiven and reconciled to him by the obedience of that servant that he ordained. And then, in the second half of Isaiah 53, he would be exalted, lifted up, and he would be given the spoil and the heritage of his work, the reward for his labor, and that reward then would spill over and become the blessing of all who trust in him, all who are his people. They somehow, in the miraculous kindness of God, will share in the reward that Christ himself earned. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And now when we get to chapters 40, uh, 54 and 55, we begin to see the ramifications of all that Christ has done, and we are admonished to respond to what Christ has done. We see that as we work our way through these passages. We are encouraged to 
joyfully respond in anticipation of all of the benefits for which Christ died as they will come to us. Think about that for a moment. All of the benefits for which Christ died, all that he earned by what he did, is going to come to his people, and we're called to joyful anticipation of that and to enter into that with hope and with joy and confidence because of what Christ has done. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is to read these two chapters together because they really go together, and I, I, uh, we're not going to be able to read them together every week, but I wanted to take a moment here at the beginning to... Uh, to put them all together in For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I have set your stones in antimony and will lay your foundations with sapphires and make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. And whoever stirs up strife with you will fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, 
a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Amen. I am so looking forward to these passages. Now, our text is just simply going to be the first 10 verses this morning of Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 1 to 10. And this passage is framed by several commanded responses to all that we have seen Christ doing in Isaiah 53. Several commanded responses frame this passage. The first is in verse 1. Sing, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Then verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your tent cords and strengthen its stakes. And the third command or set of commands is in verse 4. Fear not and be not confounded. These are responses of joy. These are responses of expectation that we are commanded to have because of all that Christ the Messiah will do in his work that's spelled out in Isaiah 53. So what are we commanded to do? How are we commanded to respond to all that Christ has done? First of all, he just says, sing. Sing aloud to his name. This is the first application. Really, all of these commands are applicatory to us. Sing. I admonish you, brothers, when we gather together, sisters, to sing aloud, to sing the Lord's praises. This has always been the response that God's people had to his saving acts. Do you realize that? It is never enough for God's people to simply say, he has delivered us. (laughs) They have to sing about it. They have to 
be creative. They have to be emotional. They have to draw it out, all that God has done from the very beginning. When God delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and they got across the Red Sea, what did they do? They sang his praises. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God's people sing, they praise, they worship in song. We have a whole book in our Bible of 150 of these, right? God is worshipped by the singing of his praise from the mouths of his people. Jesus and his disciples sang praises to God. The early church admonished one another to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the book of Revelation ends with singing of praise to the one who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. This is the way that we are admonished to respond. Now, let me ask you, do you sing? Is your heart full, so full of the wonder of what God has done that when we sing, you enter into it wholeheartedly. You know in the Bible there are 400 references to singing. 50 direct commands to sing the praises of God. Are you obeying those commands? I mean, seriously, are you, when you come in here and you sit, can you let your heart be so full of God's gracious salvation that you open your mouth and enter into it? You know, sometimes I've seen that, that people, some people come in and they, they listen, but they don't sing. They don't enter into the worship and the praise of God themselves. And it, maybe you struggle with that sometimes. Maybe you come in and maybe you think, well, I'm not a very good singer, or, you know, I'm just really tired this morning, or I'm, you know, whatever it is that is keeping you from being able to enter into that, I want to encourage you to look past all of your own awkwardness. You know, I don't know too many places in the world where people sing together now. Maybe it's uh, always been like that, but it certainly is like that now. Maybe there will be a few venues where people might join their voices together in song, but there aren't too many. But when we come to church, let all of whatever awkwardness you may feel be consumed by thinking about what you sing, by meditating on the glories. What did we sing today? I am his and he is mine, his forever, only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Does that message stir your soul? Then sing, the Lord says. Sing his praise. Ask God to fill you with that spirit of joy and delight in all that God has done. And it is, singing is a, result of being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, you are filled with the Spirit, not filled with wine, not drunk and living out a life of debauchery, but instead being filled under the control, the influence of the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing to the Lord, this is the first command. And those who are instructed to sing are referred to in this passage. Notice who is instructed to sing. Who is it? Might be surprising. Uh, a barren woman is told to sing. Right? You see that verse one? Barren one who did not bear. 
You who have not been in labor, sing. For Israel, being, being a barren woman, is, it was a cause of great sadness and shame. Part of God's purpose was that she may bear children and bring children into this world. Remember Hannah, who was filled with sadness and shame at being barren? But these people who are being called to sing are spiritually barren. There is very little fruit of godliness in their lives. Their relationship with God as a, as a nation has produced very few true spiritual offspring. So many of the physical descendants of these people have had stony hearts, but now they're called to sing for joy. And what you're going to find in each one of these commands is that it's accompanied by a reason to um, obey that command or a motivation to obey, and it's found always in the word for. So look at why this woman is called to sing, this barren woman of Israel, this one who has produced no fruit for God. Why is she called to sing, verse 1, because or for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Look at verse 3. For sing, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. This nation is going to grow. It's going to expand. This nation that has been barren will expand to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. He's telling her to sing to rejoice with singing because though she is a barren woman, unable to have children, yet she will end up with a full house. And so there is great cause for rejoicing. You know, it's always a great joy when a family, a big family gets together, isn't it? You all have family reunions sometimes. And everybody comes from a long place away. And they all crowd into this little house. And everybody's talking at once. And there's laughing and there's greeting. And there's just, this is the picture here. This is a, a, a great family all gathered to this woman who was barren, who had nothing, who had an empty and quiet house. And now it's going to be filled with joy and laughter and praise of the Lord her God. This is why she's called to sing. And I, I am sure that this passage was meant to remind us of the story of the patriarchs, and particularly Abraham and Sarah, right? Abram and Sarai. Remember, uh, in fact, that's the first use of this term barren in all the Bible. The Bible says that Sarah was barren, unable to conceive children. And even past her childbearing years, she had gone all her life as a barren woman under what was um, seen to be a, 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 in, in a place of shame. And Abraham, you remember, finally had a child by Hagar, their slave. But this would not be the child of promise. Miraculously, God opened Sarah's womb, and from her came the seed of a whole nation. And Paul quotes this very verse 
in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 here in Isaiah 54, and making reference to Sarah and Hagar. And, and the way Paul uses this is to say that in Abraham, God established two covenants. There was, in the one hand, the old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, made with Abraham's natural offspring, who were represented by this woman, Hagar, who bore children for slavery. That, Paul says, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. But Abraham also was the father of a new covenant made with Abraham's supernatural offspring, represented by Sarah, who bore sons who are free, who correspond, Paul says, to the Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem. There are these two covenants in play here then, the old covenant and the new covenant. And all of this is behind what Isaiah is about to unfold throughout chapter 54 and 55. The glories of this coming new covenant, the old covenant, is expressed most explicitly at Mount Sinai when God said, do this and you will live, right? Disobey and you will surely die. The new covenant is expressed through Jesus Christ and it says, it is done, it is finished. Christ has done for you what you failed to do. So the old covenant says, do this and live. The new covenant says, it is done. Now live. So under the old covenant, Israel was barren and unfruitful in really producing an obedient people. But under the new covenant, the new Jerusalem would be filled with children, not of the flesh, but supernatural offspring, filling that city to where it had to expand in order to take all of these children. Remember Israel's question when she was confronted with the glories, the promises of the new covenant back in chapter 49, verse 21? Israel said, where have these children come from? Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. Where have these come from? Right? Can you imagine this barren woman? And now her house is completely full. She's unable to conceive, and yet she has a multitude of children. How is this? Where does this come from? How does this happen? How does this barren land possess so many children? Children, and the answer, of course, is in Isaiah 53. We read in verse 10 that when his, that is the Messiah's soul, makes an offering for sin, he shall see his what? You remember Isaiah 53, verse 10? When his soul makes an offering for sin, he will see his what? He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The answer is to Israel's question, where have these come from? The answer is that the new covenant produces a spiritual offspring. 
And Christ's work will be fruitful beyond measure in producing those children. He and he alone fills Zion with believing children. And so, as Isaiah foresees this, the commanded response is, verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen those stakes in order to support all of the growing weight of this huge tent that it's going to take to bring these children into the household. The land of Israel itself is going to be too small to hold all of the children of Abraham under the new covenant. And so he says, enlarge your house. Build an addition onto your house because when Christ comes, he is going to beget a whole worldwide nation. Your offspring will possess the what? The nations. This is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. Fulfilled in Christ, of whom the Lord said, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the world for your possession. So, Zion, you better get a bigger tent because you're about to be busting at the seams. This is what the Lord says to his people. And you know, it's actually belief in this promise. It's the expectation of the fulfillment of these things that has been the fuel for the modern missionary movement. In May of 1792, a 32-year-old William Carey addressed a gathering of pastors in north-central England, and he used these verses as his text. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out, because you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And he asked the question, why should we enlarge the tent, lengthen the cords, and strengthen the stakes? Why does a barren woman build a bigger tent? Why does she prepare for a whole host of children? Because she what? Because she expects it. Because she expects that it'll be so. Because of the promise of God. Do you really expect God to do this? This is the question Carrie put forth to these ministers. Do you expect that God is going to fulfill this? Do you believe that he is calling for himself a people from every tribe and nation of the world? And the climax of his sermon became the, the motto for the first Baptist missionary society. Expect great things and attempt great things. Why did he tell those pastors to expect great converts into the household of God? Because God promised it. He commanded it in this very text. God has decreed it. And rather than making us passive, we are commanded to action. Now, Carrie was 32 years old. And maybe there's, you know, some 30-somethings here. 
or some young adults or even a serious-minded teenager and you would catch this vision that is prophesied here in this text and see that God has promised in the new covenant to expand the tent of Israel to cover the entire globe and to bring in a people from the nations for himself. And you would say, I want to be a part of that. I expect that God is going to do that. And I'm going to go out in expectation that he is fulfilling this purpose in the world now. There is a third command given to God's people, beginning in verse number four. Verse four, fear not, for you will not be, what? Yeah, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. Remember the shame and the disgrace that it was to be barren? So why? Why should they not be afraid and ashamed that they're going to be disgraced because of their situation? And the answers are twofold. The first four is in the middle of the fourth verse. For you will not for excuse me, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Now the metaphors get kind of mixed here, don't they? First she's a barren woman and now she's a widow. And later on, she'll be a divorced woman. So he's just sort of mixing all of these things together because they all point to a fearful, shameful condition. And he's saying, what's going to happen with regard to that? It'll be forgotten. It'll be left behind. And by the way, that's where, that's where Israel was apart from Christ, in a fearful, shameful condition. That's where every single one of us is apart from Christ. But that thing will become a thing of the past, he says. You will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Well, how in the world can that be for a woman who is barren or put off or whose husband is dead? How can it be that she might have hope? How could it be that a Naomi would go from being bitter to being blessed? The answer is in verse 5, because your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. What's the, what's the point in verse 5? He's saying, remember who your husband is. Right? You're a barren woman. In spite of all of your natural inabilities, your whole situation is going to be turned around. Rather than being ashamed, rather than being disgraced, you're going to be fruitful, you're going to be blessed. How can this be for a woman who has no ability to conceive? And his answer is, remember who your God is. Remember who your husband is. The Lord of hosts, the God of the whole earth. With God, nothing is what? Impossible, that's right. Maybe, sinner, you are spiritually barren and it is beyond your ability to please God. You find that in your flesh there is no good thing. That when you look back on the way that you have lived, there's nothing but shame and being confounded 
and disgrace. There's no fruitfulness for the glory of God. What hope is there for any of us? And the answer is, you will bear if this God is your husband. If you will hear and believe this message, he says to you, listen, fear not. Because God is going to wipe away your reproach. All of the shame of your youth. Friend, God will remember it no more. All those, all the fruit of that old life whereof you are now ashamed will be a thing of the past because you'll be made a new person. God will wipe away all of that reproach and forget the sins of your youth. Take heart. If you abide in him, you will bear what? What happens? Jesus said, you abide in me, you will bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. You say, well, you know, that's what I want. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Friend, don't make out... Don't make that into more than it is. Like, I have to kind of get into this sort of mysterious spiritual state where now I'm abiding in Him. No, stay in Him. Abide in Him. Keep on going in Him. Keep on trusting. Keep on believing. Keep on holding on to His promises. Keep on repenting of your sin. Keep on hearing His word with faith, and you will bear fruit. You will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Listen, God's going to make his people flourish in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Hold on to that and sing for joy. Fear not. Be not confounded. You say, well, it seems so impossible in my flesh. Oh, there's just, I'm, I'm so weak and I'm, I'm everything that I ought not to be. And absolutely that's true. But listen, your husband is your maker He is the Lord of hosts, the God of all the earth. He is the God who does the impossible. For this reason, he says, fear not. And there's a second reason in verse 6. Why should you not fear or be confounded at your present shame and disgrace? Because the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. The Lord has called you to himself. And here's what he calls out to this abandoned wife. Verse 7. He says to her, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The Lord would pursue his wayward bride. And of course, that was true. It would be true for Israel on a broad historical scale. Remember, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, the Lord said that he had put away his people with a certificate of divorce because of what? Because of all her transgressions, her sins, her infidelity to him, her spiritual adultery in going after other gods on every high hill and under every green tree, making love to the gods of stone and wood. This is 
Israel's great sin and the reason for which God put her away, exiled her from his presence. Earlier we read Jeremiah 3, the Lord said, You have played the whore with many lovers. And so Israel broke covenant with the God that she had at Sinai. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31. And God, as a result, sent her away out of his house, exiled her from the land. And she now was suffering many years in Babylon because of her sin against God. And yet, what does God tell her here? Here's a word, now get, the, get where, where this is. This is a word of God that would be for those people who would find themselves for years exiled, sent out of God's house, divorced from their great God. And what hope do they have? The hope is that God will yet pursue them again and bring them back into his home and once again be a husband to them, love them. And now this relationship would be a fruitful one that would produce a whole um, city full of people, right? It was true on a broad historical scale, but it's also true in God's dealings with you, Christian, in a personal way. Listen, every one of us have broken God's laws, and there are times when we feel that we have been deserted and God has hidden his face from us. But because of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, the Lord says to you, yet I will have compassion on you. I will gather you to myself. I will forget all of the shame of your youth and the reproach Oh, wayward Christian, can you hear the sweet voice of God in these words? Calling out to you, though you've wandered, though you've been unfaithful, though you have been, uh, as it were, abandoned by God, and yet now God says, I will call you to myself. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Now there is... A troubling question here for an astute hearer. And that is this. If God sent away his people with a certificate of divorce for their spiritual adultery, if God's people joined themselves to other gods of wood and stone, then how could God ever be righteous in taking them back? Have you ever thought about that? How could God ever be righteous in taking them back? And maybe it's never dawned on you, but this is literally the question that was front and center in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. Remember we read it earlier? Let me just take a moment and follow this trail with me. Okay? Jeremiah 3, he brings up this very issue. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? And Jeremiah says, if that were to be the case, then would not the land be greatly polluted? And then he makes the application to Israel, right? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? This is an unheard of thing. This is ungodly. This is wicked. Right? Because God's... uh, law uh, had 
laid down this rule, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Right? What Jeremiah is concerned about in God showing mercy to wayward people is rooted in the law of God in, Jerem- in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Listen to it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and Jesus' interpretation of that phrase was sexual immorality. Right? She's been sexually immoral, and so... He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her as his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may, listen to this, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance this is what exactly what Jeremiah was saying right would not the land be greatly polluted if God were to pursue Israel who had turned her back on him and united herself to false gods Would not that be a pollution, a very violation of God's own law? You see why this is a big problem, right? This is a problem on the level of, to use New Testament language, how can God be just and be the justifier of him who believes? I mean, this is a huge, irreconcilable problem. How can God restore to himself a wife that has been put away because of unfaithfulness? Now, here's the answer. The answer that's given by Paul in Romans chapter 7. And you may even want to turn here, Romans chapter 7, and uh, beginning in verse 1. He says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, right? That's people, those are the people to whom this is going to be a problem, people who know what God's law says. He says, I'm writing to people who know the law. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he what? As long as he lives. And here, now he makes the application to marriage, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So now here's the application. Likewise, my brothers, you also have what? You've died. See, the answer to this insuperable problem is death. You also have died to the law, how? Through the body of Christ. That is, in union with Christ, who is the dead husband, the one who was born under the law and suffered the curse of the law, And now death has made it, look verse 4, death has made it so that you may belong to another. Now you can legally belong to another. 
because death has severed that first marriage. That's the only way for this woman to be married. Death has severed that marriage so that you may belong to another, that is, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, who is that? Well, that's another in the sense that this is not Christ under the law, but Christ in the Spirit, the resurrected Christ. One and the same person, and yet another in terms of covenant. So, he says, God has done this. You have died in Christ's death to the law of God, to the old covenant. Why? So that you belong to another Ultimately, so that you may bear what? So that we may bear fruit for God. Isn't that exactly the context of Isaiah 54, right? This barren people, this divorced woman, this person who's all alone, she is now going to be fruitful beyond her wildest dreams. We may bear fruit for God. For while, verse 5, we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members bearing fruit for death. But now we, have, we are released from the law, the law that calls for our death. How are we released from it? Having died to that which held us captive. That is, in the bonds of matrimony to the law, slavery to the law, and all of the law's penalties for breaking covenant with God. It's like you were related to God in terms, in these terms. Every single human being was related to God in these terms. If you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will surely die. The only hope for any of us to be delivered from that and now to be united to God because we've broken this old covenant is through death ourselves. Here's the way it unfolds. All of us, like Israel, we're related to God in terms of law. All of us have broken covenant with him through disobedience and spiritual adultery. So by law, there is no hope for reconciliation, Deuteronomy 24. The relationship is irrevocably destroyed. This is the insurmountable problem that only the gospel can overcome. And the answer to this great problem is death itself, which breaks the bonds of law. Christ died under the law and we died unto the law in him. And only in union with Christ in his death are we free from now the former covenant relationship that we had with God, which demanded perfect obedience so that we could be related to God under a new covenant, a covenant of grace, a covenant of peace. This, I think, is the answer, the way that all of this can be reconciled. It could only ever be reconciled through, the, through death, through the death of Christ Jesus and through our death in him. Now, I think that same answer is hinted at back in Isaiah 54. Let's go there as we finish quickly the last two verses. Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me. So Isaiah's made reference to the Abrahamic covenant. He's made reference to the Mosaic covenant. 
Now he makes reference to the covenant with Noah. The gospel is revealed through all of these covenants by further steps. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more grow over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Remember that Noah passed through the waters of death, brought through death safely in the ark that God had provided. And he came out into resurrection life on the other side of death, into a new creation that God had prepared for him. And Peter for his part, in 1 Peter chapter 3, says that the flood finds correspondence in our Christian baptism. Those who are baptized by faith into Jesus Christ are what? Buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised into resurrection life, into a new creation in Christ Jesus. So now, God can be in relation with them, is in relation to them, not under the terms of the old covenant, do this and live, but rather under terms of the new covenant, foreshadowed in that covenant that God made with Noah when he said, I will not be angry and flood the earth anymore. And now God says to his people, I will no more be angry with you and will not rebuke you. This is the word of comfort of the new covenant. This is the word of assurance for those who are God's people through the covenant of Jesus Christ. God can say that and still at the same time be just because sin has already been punished in the judgment waters of Christ's death. Can you imagine what it must have been to live in the days after Noah's flood? This great cataclysmic rain event and water event that literally transformed the whole world. You know, I'm sure that the world must have looked very different after the flood than it looked before the flood. And so, from now on, everywhere you go discovering this new creation, you are seeing in front of you visible scars in the earth's landscape that remind you of the judgment of God, of the wickedness of humanity and the wrath of the Almighty. But every time that rain begins to fall, perhaps now your heart begins to quake and you wonder if you've missed out on the ark, if God is angry, if, if you will be destroyed again under his wrath, can you imagine that? When the sky grows dark and the thunder clouds clap and the lightning strikes again, you remember that great cataclysm of all those years before? And what hope do you have? Well, the hope that you have is God has made a covenant, right? And he's put his bow in the clouds. And rather than being pulled back and aimed at you, he's hung it in the clouds that you may know that he will no longer be angry, no longer judge the world by a flood, 
So the Lord says to his people now, I will no longer be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. This is the promise of the new covenant. What an amazing thing it is to hear God say, I will never destroy you in my anger. Never. I mean, when you really know how bad you are, isn't that an amazing thing? And even more to hear God say, I will never rebuke you in anger. I will never rebuke you in anger. Now, the Lord truly does rebuke his people. He does chasten those whom he loves. But do you understand this? If you are a new covenant believer, God will never rebuke you in anger. He rebukes you in his love, in his faithful love. Three times in this passage, we are reminded that he is a God of compassion. He is a God of compassion. There's warmth in that word, isn't there? He is like a father towards his children. Do you ever feel that God is cold towards you? Do you ever think, oh, listen, I've been so barren and unfruitful that God has turned his back on me. He has no heart for me at all. No, he is a God who is full of compassion. His chastening may last for a brief moment, but it will work for us in eternal weight of glory. So, he says, I will not be angry with you. Listen, no saint ever need fear the wrath of God. His wrath was exhausted upon the cross, poured out in full. Every bit of his wrath held in that cup that the Savior drank down to the dregs. Every last drop. There is not one drop of God's wrath yet to fall upon his children. I will be angry with you no more. Can you remember that? When you sin, when you fail, when you fall, not in some perverted way to comfort yourself in your evil, but to grant you hope to get back up and run to that God. Though he deserts you for a moment, he will have everlasting compassion upon you. As long as the earth shall stand, he says, you are the object of my steadfast love. Isn't that a great way to say it? He calls it steadfast love. This is not love that shifts with the sand or is blown about with the wind or is dependent on your activity and your obedience. His love is steadfast towards all who are in covenant with him through Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we have every reason to hope, every reason not to fear, every reason to sing with joyful expectation of what God can do. He's our maker. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the God of the whole earth. And if you are in Christ, then sing. You will not be barren forever. Don't be dismayed. Don't be confounded. Your failings or his chastening, abide in him. Hope in him. Wait on him with hope and you will not be disgraced. Or in the words of our brother Kerry, expect great things. Let's pray. Oh, Father, 
the promises and assurances that are ours in the new covenant in Christ Jesus are so wonderful we almost dare not believe them. O Lord, forgive our unbelief and grant to us the encouragement of our faith today. And I pray that whatever is going on in every hearer here today, they would have ears to hear your word and to receive it. And let it do its good work in every one of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.